0: Visit myflexlearning dot com backslash B E to learn more and receive five hundred dollars off the first year. That's myflexlearning dot com backslash B E. This is Dr. Karen and you are listening to the De facto Leaders podcast where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-aged kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Buddy, it's Dr. Karen and welcome to episode 115 of the DeFacto Leaders podcast. Since starting this podcast, I have had several guests who work with individuals who've experienced trauma, but I've never actually had a guest come on and give a definition and a framework for what trauma-informed care is. So that's why I wanted to have a guest who has quite a bit of training and personal experience on this topic. Those of us working in K-12 education interact with students and staff who've experienced trauma, whether we're aware of the specific events or not. A lot of people have heard the term trauma-informed care, but not everyone knows what it means or how to do it in practice. That's why I wanted to invite special guest, Rachel Archambault, to the show to talk about what trauma-informed care is and how educators and therapists can put it into practice. Rachel is an SLP program specialist for Broward County Public Schools. After a traumatic event happened at her workplace on February 14, 2018, she looked for ways to help students and herself after trauma. She found trauma-informed care and has been presenting nationally to SLPs and other providers on how trauma-informed care can be used in their setting. She currently runs the Instagram account PTSD SLP, which discusses trauma-informed care from a speech pathology lens, But if you are someone who is a related service provider, a special ed teacher, a school administrator, it can certainly apply to the work that you're doing in K-12 education. I got a ton of key takeaways from this conversation, including what exactly trauma-informed care is and how can people working in the schools provide a supportive environment for students. Another thing that really popped out was what school leaders need to know about being trauma informed and why it's not just about the students. So that was a huge aha moment that came about from this conversation. So if you are a school leader or anyone who is providing support for staff in the school setting, that is something that you'll definitely want to pay attention to as you listen to this conversation. Another thing that popped out was how to avoid re-traumatization, including the way that you use language or other common triggers. So that's something else that is really important. I think most people have good intentions, but if you don't have specific training on this, it's easy to do something with good intentions that actually does make things more difficult for people who have experienced trauma. I certainly wish I would have had this training and information when I started my career, because I can think back to, a handful of times, and I've shared those in this conversation, when I was dealing with sensitive situations, and I, looking back, wish I would have handled them differently. So if you are somebody who has training on how to work with academic skills or cognitive skills, this is something that's absolutely essential to consider while you're doing those things. Throughout this episode, I am going to be sharing several resources and trainings to help build resilience in your students in a supportive way, So stick around for those. And also I wanted to mention one other thing. Before we get going, Rachel was recommended to me by a previous guest. That guest was Mike McLeod, an ADHD specialist. He was a guest on the show back when I was in the parenting category. But if you are working in the schools and you're working with students with ADHD and executive dysfunction, you're definitely going to want to check out those episodes. So the episodes when he was a guest are episodes eight and nine on building accountability and motivation, as well as setting boundaries around time management and device use. So now please enjoy this episode on trauma-informed care with Rachel Archambeau. today I am joined by Rachel Arshambo, the PTSD SLP. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, I thought we would get started by just having you share a little bit about yourself and what you do. So my name is Rachel. I am, I think,
1: in my seventh year of being an SLP Currently, my role is I'm a speech program specialist for Broward County Schools. So we are the sixth largest district in the country um, in terms of number of students. Um, So that means I have almost 40 schools that I help support all of the SLPs at that school. That might be one, that might be zero, that might be five SLPs, depending on the population of that school. Um, I love this role. So different every day. I never know what my schedule is. Um, And then previously, um, before this job, uh, in October of 2021, I left my job of six years also working for Broward County Schools. But one school in particular was Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Um, I left in 2021. I just needed something new. And uh, if you recognize that name, there was a nationally known traumatic event that happened there. So this is what led me to talk about trauma-informed care. Some of you might know me on Instagram as the PTSD SLP. And on that account, I talk about trauma-informed care, its implications, and how SLPs or other service providers or educators can use that in their setting, across
0: any setting. Right. Well, so Um, I, I've heard you talk on a couple of other podcasts and just share a little bit about your experience with what happened to, Mm -hmm. at your school. Can you go into that? Just however much you're comfortable sharing. Sure. Sure. And I am
1: comfortable talking about all of it, but I try to narrow it down so it is not triggering to other people. So basically what happened is there was a mass shooting that happened, at the school on Valentine's day, 2018. We just hit five years after that happened. Um, So after that happened, it's a very interesting like control group of the school. Cause we, uh, I know some people go to college with, with a smaller population than this school. There's Mm 3,600 kids at this school. Um, So, and because it was so nationally recognized, the whole community was facing trauma. So we had to deal with the whole community that was dealing with trauma, the students, the staff, everyone. Um, And I was trying to find why I should care about a lisp or something when people didn't feel safe on campus. But um, that day there were 17 people who passed away. Uh, We had two weeks off of school Uh, to kind of attend some trainings but mostly just kind of figure out what we were going to do when we came back and we kept hearing there's no rule book there's no rule book but there actually kind of is Uh (laughs) um, that principles have actually gotten together um, as part of this coalition to give other principles a rule book of what to do when this happens Um, also this year we had the actual trial, um, which was very different from many other school situations that we don't often have a person to persecute. So the whole community had to deal with that trauma, uh, this year as well. That was the beginning of this school year. Um, so that was another form of re-traumatization. So really it's, it was just trying to figure out how I could continue my job, make my students feel safe. And again, this is a high school, so I'm dealing with students that are 14 to possibly 22 years old, uh, varying disabilities, and the community. Also, the teachers, myself being dysregulated, it was just a whole mess,
0: to say the least. (laughs) Yeah, I just thinking about that, I, I actually talked to someone yesterday who is who does is a school counselor who um, she talks a lot about self-care and self-care for the staff and how the staff are usually really good about, or at least they're better about how do we take care of the students. Yep. But then you're you're always worried about the person you're taking care of. So if you're the teacher, you're thinking about how do I take care of my students? If you're an administrator, it's, well, I need to take care of my staff and and so on. And so it's always... That person below, or, or like not below you, but I yes the person under your care, and but then who's taking care of of you, and who's taking care of the staff,
1: right? And I see that in my head as like an upside down pyramid. You know yeah. that it's like the the larger systems having to support the lower and lower and lower to the very last person. But I could write a book about that whole topic itself. That. Um, First of all, they pulled every school psychologist and therapist from other schools in our district, which there are like 300 schools or something, you know. Mm-hmm. They pulled all those therapists to our school immediately after. So although that is somewhat helpful for our school, we just removed all the support from the other schools.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so that's like this catch 22 that we have that, uh, yes, we needed it, but so did other, other people in the district. Mm-hmm. Um and then there were many times that we felt uh, as staff members that we were not being supported. It was always the kids, the kids, the kids. And we were yeah. have needing to be the ones to advocate for ourselves. Like, hey, we are struggling big time. But just like what you said, we are in a caring profession, many of us. So we're always worried about the kids. And I one example specifically is I know – Many staff members before this happened never took a day off work. They would come in sick. They would come in whatever. When this happened, that was exemplified that it was like they could not take a day off because their kids said, I do not feel safe coming to school without you here, or I cannot be here without you here. So we had incredible attendance in those months after. And then you see a significant drop that they were like, they hit rock bottom. They burnt out. And then it was you can't keep them in school because they now know the help helpfulness of, of self-care, which wasn't prioritized before. So it took till this happened for them to be like, yeah, I can take a day off. I need a day off. I don't need to be sick to take a day off. And that was a big difference for
0: us. So with the staff attendance, not, you're not necessarily. Yes. Mm -hmm. Staff attendance. That's interesting how it, it almost skipped. Like it's. Instead of it being teachers take care or, or, or therapists as well, mm-hmm. take care of students, administrators take care of the teachers, and mm-hmm. it just sort of skipped yes. over you. Like- it did.
1: And it's still, and I think that comes with the event of what happened, the specific event. Even mm-hmm. if you have, let's say, a shooting that multiple adults or kids are killed, it's always about the kids and there's a lot of times we we had meetings um, specifically for staff saying, this is what you could do to support us because we are carrying the burden of the parents, the staff, the administrators, the students, it's all coming on us. Um, so there were a lot of times that we did feel that we didn't have administration on our side because there were, it was priorities. The priority was the kids and not saying that that wasn't the correct answer,
0: yeah. but
1: we were also super affected and we needed additional support as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, after this happened, there were two weeks where the kids were off, but then you were expected to come in and do training to prepare for the kids, or did everybody have it off? So
1: the kids had two weeks off. The staff had a week and a half off, mostly because there were funerals happening in that time. So uh, there were many people that went to, at most 15, I went to two. Um, but then we had that half a week, I think it was three days, that they had People from all over the country come to speak to us and say, here's what you can do. Here's, you know, it's all about readjustment into the classroom. There was no priority on academics at that time, which full support because they had to feel safe again there. You know, yeah. Um, when you look at some of the other events that have happened at other schools, um, like I think of Rob Elementary, that happened a few days before summer break ended. So they had the entire summer to kind Mm -hmm. of regroup. But also I can see that as a negative because they didn't have the supports like we did because it happened to us in February. We had several months of people coming to the school. We had that time to help regroup. Um, but there's no good answer for mm-hmm. what, what should be done. Um, it's, it's a really tough situation. It's just support needs to be available for everyone. And that's why trauma-informed care is so important is that if this mindset was put first, I think we would have been able to support the student, the staff, the administrators, the parents, the community all at once.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about a recent post that you shared, the green shirt post. Okay. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, So I have been doing this Instagram page, PTSD SLP since July, 2019. I was on family vacation and I just went on Instagram one day and I created it. I posted about it. um, And my mom was like, were you going to tell us you were going to, you know, create this Instagram? And I was like, I didn't know I was doing it until I was literally on Instagram creating it. You know, I didn't, Mm -hmm. it it was, it was that fast. Um, So it's become over the past four years an outlet for me, but also a place that people can learn about trauma informed care. I use my experience as an SLP. Um, and I've been asked to speak a lot, um, at live conferences, which is incredible. I have been using, um, as a headshot, uh, during that time, just like regular pictures of me, um, like, you know, out at a restaurant with a friend Uh Then I crop the friend out. And it's become this year has been a very big year for, um, speaking requests and everything. So I went and got professional headshots. And one of the pictures that or one of the outfits that I wore, I had two outfits, was a green shirt. And it was my favorite, favorite shirt. And I haven't worn it in five years because the last day I wore it was 214, 18 when that happened. Um, so I have another post way, way, way down. I think it's a year and a half down on my page. That talks about the link between clothing and trauma, how some some people, you know, can't wear it or, you know, they throw it out immediately um, or they look at it every day and they're like, oh, I'm going to wear that today. They decide against it. So there's differing opinions about that. And it's an individual's choice about how they feel about clothing. But I chose that. I really love that shirt. That's why I wore it that day. It was Valentine's Day that I thought I looked good in that shirt. I Mm -hmm. felt nice in that shirt. Um, and I had been sick of it just sitting in my closet for the last five years. So I wore it to these professional headshots and the pictures, actually, I felt so comfortable. I felt like myself. Um, and I chose to turn this bad luck shirt into a good luck shirt. So I think it was time to do that. I, I thought it was the time to do it. And, you know, I, I've gotten so many comments about how, Oh, I love all the shirts with the green. You look, so, you know, I love. Yeah. You look so happy. You look. Uh, it's just like you, you know. Um, and I am so glad that people see that because I was worried that I was going to feel anxious in that shirt, or if anything bad happened, like even a minor thing that, like, I spill coffee or something, I'd be like, it's because I'm wearing the shirt, and that's another um side effect of trauma is yeah. like putting blame onto certain things oh it's this because this happened so i had a great day i had great pictures they came out fantastic and i'm using those to put on a website that i'm building right now and putting on to my presentations that i'm doing in front of many many people and i think it just shows a difference between where i was when i made the page in 2019 to now i think i feel more like myself and it wasn't the shirt that was the bad luck. It was just a bad time in my life. And I'm glad that I have repurposed
0: it into my good luck shirt. I love that story. I find myself doing the same thing obviously. And I, I remember I commented on that post that yes. I I do that same thing. My thing is if I get really sick when I'm wearing something and then I think of it again and I almost start to feel sick or how I felt whenever yeah. I was wearing that shirt last. And I almost have to force myself where it's, I'm going to wear it again. And this time it's, it's going to be okay. And I almost have to make myself have some good experiences and just get that belief out of my head because I know exactly what you mean when you say you start to make these connections that aren't really connections just because your, your brain just goes there. Yeah. So, I mean, and I'm sure that there are a lot of examples of this where there's, little micro traumas that you have during your day were something you know obviously something that isn't maybe considered a huge traumatic event but it's just something that felt dramatic to you whatever it was for whatever reason you experienced that way
1: of course i have a coworker who's who told me she connected so much to what i was saying and she really didn't put two and two together that um she was in a pediatrician's office when her three-year-old son was diagnosed with autism and that interaction with the doctor was not a positive experience they weren't using trauma-informed language when telling them it was just like your son is showing all these red flags you know negative 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 um and her son at the time was wearing a shirt with a lion on it and to this day or the mom threw out that lion shirt um because she couldn't look at it anymore and lions are like a trigger to her that it brings her back to that day um so there is connection between clothing. Um, any of your senses are very connected to trauma. So mm-hmm. it could be a certain smell that brings you yeah. back. Um, but it's just interesting how clothes are affected sometimes.
0: The smell one I've noticed as well, cause it's something that you don't see. It just comes at you and it's like, Whoa, there it is, you know, and, Absolutely. It, and it, it, you can just feel it in your whole body. The, I know. you know, the, the palms and the, you know, the cold, sweaty feeling. <laughs>
1: yeah, and it ha- it doesn't have to go right to trauma. It could be a highly stressful or a stressful moment that it just brings you back to that memory. Um, so it doesn't have to be necessarily trauma related. There is a bigger impact with trauma, but it it can be a trigger nonetheless.
0: Yeah. So I thought we could go back to um, as you're as you're talking about the trauma informed language. I can think of this time. So I was. It was my very first year as a school SLP, my very first eval that I did all by myself without, you, know the, you mm-hmm. know, the first one that you did. And it's you did the whole thing by yourself without your supervisor. And I'm describing this, the results, like I'm doing a paper presentation in right. school to this parent. And I didn't even notice it. the The psychologist said that the mom was like, like the way that I was saying it, Mm. that she was just getting visibly uncomfortable. And then I noticed it and tried to backtrack. And it's like, like, I wish someone would have told me about that. I knew how to get a good grade in school. I knew how to put the right things on the report, but then knowing how to communicate this to a, a parent who this is the first time that they're hearing that there's something, you know, where their child is going to need services. And I just, was so unprepared for that. And I just remember that because I felt so bad, you know, afterwards where I'm like, I just, I wish someone would have told me how I could communicate this and how there's other skills that you need to have besides just knowing the research and the facts and how to communicate all of that. So I thought, why don't we just like, what, what does it mean to be trauma informed? And then maybe we can go into some specifics about how that applies to practice. So Let's just start with a definition. What does okay. trauma-informed mean? So trauma-informed
1: care, really, three to four things. It's rec- realizing the prevalence of trauma. So how how does that look in our community? What is the percentage of people that um, experience trauma? Recognizing the effects of trauma. Um, so what do those symptoms look like? Um, responding to trauma. So that's us as the individual. It's us as a system. So that could be if you work in the hospitals, the hospital system, the administrators, it's that upside down triangle that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not just you as the individual at the bottom um, with the client being below that. It's all the way up the chain. And then the main goal is avoiding re-traumatization. So this is why it can be done in any setting with any population is because we're just looking at the impacts of trauma and how we can be better as individuals to make sure we don't cause any unnecessary trauma.
0: Yeah. So what are the components of it? Are there pillars or primary features? Yes. So, depending on what website
1: you look at and depending on what um, article they are citing from, there could be anywhere from like three to 12 pillars of trauma-informed care. I've tried to condense them. Um, Number one being safety, choice, collaboration, trust and transparency, empowerment. And then we also have to consider cultural, historical and gender issues. So all of these pillars being something you have to consider when you're in a session, um, or if you're thinking about another another individual. So if you are an administrator, you need to be thinking about, you know, the student's safety choice collaboration, you as the individual as a provider. So an example would be, if I'm working as an SLP, um, in my classroom of high schoolers, I want them to have the choice of how they are going to buy into speech and language therapy, or even the choice to not participate, because some of them are 18 years old, some of them are, you know, 14 years old, and they have been bullied relentlessly for being in speech and language. Um, so we need to be able to give them choices. Um, collaboration and mutuality that falls into that choice also that we need to collaborate and not have a power difference even if you're working with like a three or four year old um it needs to be a collaboration there needs to be some buy-in um trust and transparency is a is a huge one um you need to be honest of why they are in speech or language that's that transparency thing it's Having them understand why they are in speech and language, that's really important. Um, a goal, if they have a question about, you know, this is so silly, why are we doing this? You you have to let them know. And that can be done for little kids. That can be for the oldest people that we have on our caseloads, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and and trust for high schoolers that was the biggest thing. So the second yeah. that you say, oh, you know, tell me anything, it's and then you go and you tell another teacher or you tell someone else, you've broken that trust. Um, this is not the same as a mandatory reporting issue, right. um, yeah. but but smaller things um, because you you have to be on their team. And then cultural, historical, and gender issues. One example, at at my school that I worked at for six years, um, we had a very high population of transgender children. Um, So I need to recognize that within that population, the risk of suicide is like seven times more likely than the general population. So just by knowing the impact of trauma, the bullying that will, you know, be affected possibly um, to them, by understanding what is happening with our population, with our clients, we can help be more trauma-informed and reduce reduce the risk of us traumatizing or re-traumatizing
0: our clients. So when you're talking to a student specifically and you know that they have experienced some kind of trauma, what are some things that people tend to Tend to do that they don't realize is re traumatizing?
1: I would say the biggest thing to know is pushing them to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I try to, when I teach trauma informed care, my opinion is that we should not need to know what people have gone through in order to be trauma informed. So one example I say is removing violent language. So within my school, you know what I have been through, it's related to guns and gun violence when you look at our speech, our dialect, our culture, how often we say, you know, the phrase that I hear every single day at my job within the district is shoot me an email, shoot me a text. Hmm. And then when people look at me and they go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, because they realize that it's not the nicest of language to use. It's not direct. They go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And I present, there's a list of other things that we say that's like, give it a shot or something. It's all this gun-related figurative language we use. Um, Those things might affect a child that is in our class that has experienced domestic violence in the home. Um, So by removing some violent language, we are able to blanketly remove a lot of possible re-traumatization or triggers to that population. Um, When you get into specific traumas, then you are, when you know the trauma, then you're able to say, oh, you know, maybe I should remove this type of language for this specific student or all of the students. Um, It is more helpful to know what someone has gone through, but there are certain steps that we can take to make sure that we treat everyone on the same level.
0: Yeah. I can imagine with the figurative language, if you have students who have disabilities, who are where the abstract language is a little bit more difficult, and they take things literally, how that could be even more challenging. Where you know, a person who at least understands what you really meant, where that could be even more problematic if they don't.
1: It is, and and that's part of it. Is I talk about we have these lists of figurative language that we're we're testing students about their ability yeah. to understand. There are a couple that I'm a 30 year old woman. I heard. What I don't even know this one. Something, look, a gift horse in the mouth. I don't understand that one. I still cannot tell you what yeah. that means. But yeah. on every figurative language test, they're always asking people. Figurative language is generational. So we're testing kids for raining cats and dogs when they've probably never heard that term in their lives. and. It's context clues that people might be able to figure them out, but I still, that's what I'm saying is I don't understand. Look a gift horse in the mouth. What? I don't understand the the context of that. So some things that we say, like... I, I prefer to be direct. So that is one of the su- suggestions is be direct of what you're actually looking for. We don't need to be thinking from that SLP brain all the time of, oh, that's interesting, SLP brain. <laughs> yeah. um, but we don't need to be thinking about how are they able to uh, gather the context clues from this figurative language that I'm giving. The more direct we are of the actions, the steps that we are looking at, the the more we are able to reduce the chance of re traumatization.
0: I mean, and sometimes just practically just, I mean, if you're using language that's kind of vague, then, yes. and you're just trying to get from point A to point B, it's not necessarily that productive anyways.
1: Right. And we're learning so much about, you know, neurodiverse brains and that the more direct that you can yeah, be, absolutely. the more steps that, that chunking all these, things that we know work better for their processing, we need to respect that. And that's why trauma-informed care also falls into that, you know, realm of being understanding of neurodiverse brains.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting because there are some people in the schools who in theory should be trauma-informed that you think these are the people that you should send the students to if they need to talk to someone. And I do think that we should have our areas of specialization. I mean, the social worker, the counselor, the people who are designed to be those people delivering talk therapy for students who have experienced trauma. But I I would imagine that everybody else needs to at least be on the same page as far as when to make a referral, how to be proactive so that you can take whatever's going on in that therapy session or whatever needs to be out in the rest of the student's day so that you're you're helping them with those coping strategies. I think that that's probably one of the biggest challenges that I see when I'm talking to people and I would say all related service providers where it's the generalization. Like I talk mm-hmm. to I talk to the student, I teach them the strategy, we explain what they're supposed to do and then there's not generalization. I hear that they're having a behavior problem in the classroom, or even if it's something more cognitive skill-based, like I taught them this in therapy, they're not doing it outside of whatever, they're not applying it. And I don't know, I I think that sometimes with the academic skills, it's more concrete. I want them to be able to write this paper or do this math problem Mm -hmm. or do this reading comprehension assignment where with some of the things in the mental health realm, The carryover piece is a little bit fuzzier. How do you know if you've re-traumatized them, if they are sitting there not saying anything and they're just suffering silently? I mean, you know, like, are they using their strategy to calm themselves down and keep themselves regulated if you can't necessarily always see them those initial stages? definitely and
1: one of the pillars being i think it's the most important one is safety because that was the one that was violated at the school right mm-hmm. so when we all had to come back to be able to say oh my room is a safe room that's my opinion it has to be their opinion um yeah. so i would a lot of i would have a lot of kids that would say you are this is my safe room so if i'm ever triggered i'll come here i had a room Um, cause the fire alarm would go off and that was a big trigger for people. So for four years, we didn't ring those bells, but sometimes they went off due to like faulty wiring or something. So you would have kids running all over the school. Um, a lot of teachers were affected by it as well. And that is one thing about like, you know, not prioritizing the adults in the situation for the four years that students were not, you know, that were there during that day on 2018, for the four years that we had those students rotating through till their senior year, we did not ring the fire alarms. As soon as those kids all graduated, they go, you know what? We're ringing the alarms again. So it didn't take into account the staff that remained there that we yeah. were, were, had issues with those sounds. We could still do the dr- drills. We did them for four years. We did the drills without the sounds and it went fine. So it was, that was kind of the thought about like, it's, it's not taking into account from a trauma-informed perspective that we also were affected by it. Um, so that's kind of what I meant in the beginning when we're talking about administrators not,
0: oh yeah, necessarily
1: yeah. being so mindful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, there's so many examples of, you know, I tried to make my room feel safe based on my opinion, but I also am thinking constantly about what would make my students feel more safe. And I had no problem asking them. Hey, do you do you want you know the the lights off or do you want um, me to? I I covered the. I had huge windows. I covered them with like that um, window cling to make sure that no one was able to look in. um, Because they they were constantly looking out the windows, looking for threats. So by just Blurring it, they were able to have the light come in and see what was going on. Um, they were able to, you, I had a huge corner of like fidgets and other things like that. If they were able to say, Hey, do you have like an essential oil? I'd be like, Here, you can, you know, take whiffs of this. I didn't have it going because there are many kids affected by smells and everything, um, like big allergies, or I, I'm a person with many allergies. So I'm constantly thinking about who would this harm? Who would this affect? Um, how can I help? Um, so just things like that of creating a safe environment, I think is the number one thing because we've, we've all learned about Maslow before you can bloom. You know, you have to have that basic survival instinct met before you can teach, before you can do anything about that. And it took a long time for the students to be able to readjust and the staff. Like there were a lot of us that were always on edge. Um, because we didn't have any regulating uh, coping strategies, none of us, um, Mm -hmm. until after. So,
0: I wanted to take a quick break here and mention a free training for K-12 therapists. The training is called How to Deliver Evidence-Based Neurodiversity Affirming Social and Academic Support. As you're listening to this conversation, you're probably realizing how much nuance there is to supporting students in a way that, is healthy for them but also helps them to move beyond their comfort zone and have varied experiences that help them feel confident in just a minute here we're going to discuss the importance of coming at this from a place of curiosity and when students aren't engaged when we're seeing what we would define as behavior problems or task avoidance it's really important to get to the root cause of why they are struggling, and how we can support them. So I share a commonly overlooked area in the training. So that's why in this training, I wanted to share why certain kids continue to experience anxiety, even though they're going to therapy, and why some students struggle behaviorally and socially despite getting classroom management and social skills interventions. To sign up for this free training, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash EF leadership. Now let's get back to the interview. It's important.
1: That's the other thing that is the most important to me is understanding your dysregulation. So what does that look like for you? And dysregulation is just a stressful incident. How do you react to stress? And I know many of us are quick to yell at a student who is not acting the way we want them to. That is dysregulation um, because if we were, regulated, we'd be
0: able to stay calm throughout that moment. Oh, yeah, that's so important because, I mean, you have to be the one you would expect or people definitely expect the, the adults to be the one that's setting the tone or regulating. And if you're not even thinking about what you're doing for them to help them get there, I mean, who who's setting the stage for that if the adult isn't doing it?
1: Well, the, when I've presented, I've asked a couple you know, somewhat rhetorical questions. I I ask, do you ever get triggered? And I, after explaining what triggered is, and I talk about regulation, dysregulation, and they say, no, never. And we are, everyone as a human are triggered yeah. by certain things, whether that's you're, you're you're angry every once in a while, like we're in this window of tolerance and then something throws us out of that. Do you shut down? Do you go into, you know, panic mode? You need to be able to identify that. So it's asking yourself some questions of what actually do I look like when I'm dysregulated um, and asking yourself, is this causing harm to my client? Is this causing harm to myself? And it's very important to be able to self-reflect on those things.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can think back. There's so much shame too, because you think, yes, especially if you're the adult, you think, well, I'm, I should be better than this or this... Thing that happened isn't that big of a deal. Why am I overreacting? And then you almost start to get into that feeling bad about feeling bad. Yes. And it's hard for us because we're all in a helping
1: position. For us to evaluate and say, oh, I might have caused harm is not a natural thing for us to do because we are always intending to, go- to do good. So that's part of it is this re-traumatization Is often unintentional. So I I think of one example that a student. There was a a fire drill at our school, but we the alarm go off. It was just they come on the intercom and they say, "We're now doing our fire drill. Please exit the building." Um, So I had a student with me at that time who was there on 2018, and um, we exit. And then because it was just he and I one of the coaches had a golf cart and would sit at his post because it is a huge school. So he was sitting by us and he was like, Hey, Miss A, you want to ride on the golf cart? And I was like, I've got this kid. Can we both come? He's like, sure. So I thought this was this cool moment that I was like, Hey, you and I are the only ones that get a ride on the golf cart back to our room. I was like, have you ever been on a golf cart? And he said, yeah, on two fourteen when oh, they were, you know, taking me back to see my parents um, that they drove him over there. And that was completely unintentional that I, I can't eliminate all triggers. That's not possible. But that was something that I know now that he maybe doesn't have a good association with a golf cart. So I'm not going to sit down and give him a reading, um, like a reading comprehension packet about golf carts, because Mm -hmm. that's that trauma informed nature that when you know what someone has been through, or if it's a subject that you're like, oh, none of these kids have affected that, you're not or haven't been affected by that. You're not thinking trauma-informed. If you're just like, oh, let's let's put this um, reading activity about abuse, none of those kids have experienced that. That is not a trauma-informed way of thinking. It's saying who here, like not who. But there are chances that some people sitting in front of me have experienced this is this going to possibly cause harm? So you have to evaluate that when you're just picking materials and saying, oh, but it's a good thing. It's not up for you to decide what's good and what's not, or if it's traumatizing or not. It's up to the person who's sitting in front of you.
0: And it seems like the main thing is just approaching things from a place of curiosity, of just being really observant. Because, I mean, as as you said, it's great to know, but there's no way you're ever going to know. I think just approaching it as, okay, this, this is what I'm seeing the student doing. What could I, how could I investigate this to figure out why they're doing that? or Completely. What's the... So
1: I, I think of when you bring that up, we constantly see students that were like, oh, that's an ADHD kid, like all those behaviors. But when you yeah. actually look at the symptoms are what comes out from ADHD, those symptoms fall exactly into what the symptoms of trauma might be. So if you're already associating those behaviors to ADHD or saying that that is a bad kid, you're missing the trauma-informed part of it. You need to say, like, could this be something else? could this be, you know, a trauma response? So when I have a student that came into my room post 214, they're sitting in my room, they're, you know, they're fidgeting, they're bouncing their leg, they're twirling their hair, they're, you know, looking anywhere, but the material that's in front of them, you could choose to say, this kid just doesn't want to be here, you know, all these negative things when you can actually say, what if this is trauma? What if this is a trauma response? What if they are dysregulated and they are using these techniques of bouncing their legs as a stim to emotionally regulate? So that's why you constantly have to be thinking what is actually in front of me and could it be something else? So that's that curiosity you're talking about.
0: Yeah. I just, uh, this past week had a guest on who was also talking about trauma, but more working with families who Mm -hmm. have, you know, working with the adoptive, you know, people with adoptive parents. Yes. So obviously that's a huge thing. And what which, which she was saying is that, that again, there's that, is it the chicken or the egg when you do have impulsivity yep. and things that look like ADHD? And sometimes it is, sometimes it is ADHD and that is what's causing it. But then sometimes the the stress can cause the impulsivity as well. And I think that what has been frustrating for me as as a parent or as somebody who's just seeing what's going on with kids when when we're evaluating for things like that, just not doing a complete evaluation, so for example, just giving the attention rating scales, obviously it's not nothing it's giving mm-hmm. you some information, but how that interview with the people who are seeing that child across the settings is so important and putting it all together so that you can see is it the chicken or the egg yes I, I mean, and
1: We are not trauma detectives. We, unless you are a psychologist, like then you kind of are a trauma detective. But for the most of us, service providers, educators, we are not a trauma detective. We are not sitting kids down and saying, "What trauma have you experienced?" That that's not our role. We, our role is to be mindful when you see a behavior change. So you have a kid who is, you know, completely straight A's or even B's and C's, and then you see such different behaviors to what you've been seeing for this year for these eight months, six months, you have to ask yourself, like, could something else be going on? Mm -hmm. Am I associating this to them being a bad kid or, you know, they're hanging with the wrong crowd or if they're, you know, you have to be able to talk to yourself and say, what else could this be? Then you can get the appropriate people involved. Um, whether that's a referral to the social worker or, you know, just understanding that something else might be going on. So when you have, I would use it with my students all the time. I would never ask them like, what, what have you gone through? You know, but I would say like, Hey, I've noticed a bit of a change in your, you know, you're, you're not really paying attention as as much. Just wanted to let you know if you ever want to talk about anything, I'm here for you. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's up to them a month in two months, in a week, in a day, come back and say, Wow, I'm shocked that you saw the difference. You know, I, I didn't know that anyone saw that I was acting differently. I do want to talk about this, and then you could see if that is a reportable something, who you need to get involved. But just coming from our positions, we are not the trauma detectives. We are not trying to figure out what they've gone through, but just offering the space for them to discuss it with you can be part of that safety part that you might be a safe person to them or you are offering the ability to be a safe person to them. This applies to adults too. You can also say like, you've been not yourself. Like I'm always here to talk about something if you want. So that's our role.
0: I think the space is really important. I don't think anybody's ever uncovered something that they've been bottling up for a long time on demand where it's tell me what's going on <laughs>
1: right. right now
0: well so i i mean i hear from a lot of people
1: that once they say a, a teacher finds out in an IEP meeting or some other meeting a traumatic event that this kid has gone through they out of their goodness the goodness of their hearts tell the other service providers to let them know what's been going on well then the service provider goes to the kids and say hey i heard about what happened like you know, I went through the same thing. The intention behind that is good, but that's not always helpful. Like students break down, people break down that they've been caught, you know, they, they weren't expecting it. So that's that choice part. You are not giving them the choice to talk about it in that part. You're, you're telling them, I know about it and I want to talk about it on my time. And it is not mm-hmm. your time. It is their yeah. time. So that's what you need to be mindful of is when you have these conversations with the intention of saying like, I'm here as support that's not actually supportive. You might have, you might have a positive experience that a person goes, Oh my gosh, like, I didn't know you knew, like now I'm so happy, you know, but it is much safer for you to offer the space to them and say, like, I've noticed a change in behavior or noticed a change in something. And I just want to let you know, I'm here if you ever want to talk
0: Yeah. I wonder if like, what if you did something like if you want to share something about yourself and just say, oh, I went through this and just leave it there and not say anything about them. It's a tough situation because I've had people do that
1: before too, because so there's a term called trauma dumping and it doesn't have yeah. to be a traumatic yeah. event, but what you're actually doing is somewhat centering yourself. Yeah. So you just have to be careful about that because some people like to know that they are able to relate to someone. Um, I know that after everything happened at the school, the parents were, you know, being driven crazy that they're like, I want to talk to my kids so badly. And I don't understand why they want to talk to you that like my kid didn't even know you. And I'm like, because I I was there and I have I'm able to relate to them in a way that they can't relate to you or there's not a safe space, you know. So you just need to offer to be there. But when you end up saying like, oh, well, I just want to let you know I went through that. It's it's helpful in some situations, but it ends up centering yourself with it. So give them the opportunity to say, like, have you ever gone through anything like that? Or, you know, it, it's always asking questions in, in, in a way um, that you can say, I've been through something similar. And they may or may not believe you, especially with teenagers. They're like, no, you haven't. No one's ever been through this. And I, yeah. I think of, yeah. you know, going through a breakup in high school that all these adults would be like, they they weren't the love of your life. Like don't even worry about it. You'll you won't remember them and I'm like, this is the worst possible thing that's ever happened. No one could ever understand my pain. So, you have to be very mindful about that because it is their experience and they need to be able to let you know how they want you to support.
0: Yeah, I could see how doing something like that. I wonder if that could be even re-traumatizing. It like could if be. you say something where it's, "Oh, I went through this whole thing and and you're just explaining the same thing that they are not the same thing, but similar, but but yeah.
1: Yeah. And it could be that they are not ready to talk about it. So again, it's more of just like, it's on your time and it needs to be on their time. If they are the one that you know has gone through something, allow them to come to you, allow them to bring it up. And if you want to offer help with that, you say, I, I'm here to talk about anything you want to talk about. Um, and I think that is the way that you show support. Let them come to you um, because we all want to know. We're all, we're curious and we want to help. We're we're helping people, but it it ends up being, it, it can backfire. And that is a um, violent word, <laughs> backfire. Yeah. Um, but, and you'll start when you talk in your everyday life, you're going to be like, ooh, that's a violent term. That's a violent term. Um, but it might actually push the person away who you're intending. If you come on and you say, uh, you know, my dad died. I saw you that your dad died. It ends up being a pushing them to, to talk about it when it's not on their time. They might not be ready there. If you look at our school, our school could be a science project. Like people need to study it of just like the healing progression, or that was one thing that people were always like, shouldn't you be done healing by now? They thought it was on, on their terms or just I know that you've said it like, oh, you know, I've gone through something, but not as bad as you. And I joke that, you know, I'm able to understand what happened at my school. I don't understand the dating situation in South Florida. I think that is more traumatic <laughs> to me. So when, when yes. people say that, you know, what you went through, what I know about you is the most traumatic thing I can think of. There are some people that might feel that way. and might not because within my school, I am not one of the priority people. There are people that suffered worse or I get people that come up to me at conferences that say, you know, I can't think of anything worse than what you went through. And then they tell me something that they've gone through and I'm like, oh my God, that is way worse. (laughs) Like, so it's- That's so
0: interesting.
1: There's actually um, terms in the trauma world called big T and little t trauma.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: I stay away from that. I hate talking about that because again, if we're saying trauma is an individual's perspective of it, when you start assigning value to it. So one of the little T's are divorce. Divorce could be highly traumatic for some people, for a child, for a spouse, for whoever. You can't assign a number. You also, if you think of a car accident, what is your experience? What is my experience? It could be a fender bender that someone is not able to drive after that because it was such a terrifying experience or it could be a massive accident resulting in casualty and whatever that they're they're able to get back into a car. They're, you know, it, again, it is the individual's experience. So assigning value, it's not helpful because trauma is trauma.
0: Yeah, that's, um, I, I wanted to make sure that we covered that because it it does happen a lot where you either feel like, you shouldn't feel how you feel. So you, you're shaming yourself or, or you look at somebody else and think, why are you still not healed yet? Or why are you still, you know, perseverating on that or whatever it may be? Well, that's
1: another thing that I love talking about is toxic positivity because we, we experienced it at such a different level. If you can imagine this, people would come up to us the week of the funerals and say, you know, y- you, there was a reason that you're still around. That was so triggering for me that I'd be mm-hmm. like, so there's no, there's, there's a reason that this happened. Like it it could not process for me. So when I say, instead of toxic positivity, that could be like, oh, there, um, there are people that have it worse. There's people that have it worse than you.
0: Instead of saying saying
1: (laughs) yeah, instead of saying terms like that, you're you're invalidating a person's emotions. And I think as a culture, we are constantly wanting people to be happy and we are uncomfortable with other emotions. And it is totally fine to be angry and sad and upset and all these things. Instead, you can validate the emotion. So if I'm, you know, pouring my heart out and saying, you know, I feel this way, I feel this way. Your response as a as a supporter, as a comforter should be, you know what, that is really difficult. I can understand how you feel that way. You don't need to put in, yeah, and when this happened to me, because again, that's the centering yourself, just yeah. validating yeah. the emotions of saying, that is, a, that is really difficult. Like, I understand why you're so upset. It's just like, oh someone understands, like someone is validating that I'm able to feel this way because anything else is dismissive in a way. Mm-hmm. So when, when you have parents coming into your IEP team and defensive, like so mean to the entire staff, well, that's not nice. I take this trauma informed mindset all the time of what have they been through. Oh, and yeah, that's, sure. that's, they could have been gaslit by medical professionals saying, like, there's nothing wrong. Or, you know, they've been told that their, their child is severely disabled and all this negative language and all all this stuff. They might have not have good experience. They might tr- not trust the education system because they've been run around so many times. It And those are valid concerns and it's a defense mechanism that they're coming in and trying to advocate for their, for their person, you know? So it's, my brain is always on trauma-informed mode that I'm constantly, what happened to you? And that's a book, um, Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry have a book, What Happened to You? I recommend that as an intro book to trauma-informed care um, rather than The Body Keeps a Score or anything like that, because that is heavy on just, you know, certain traumatic situations and the the brain breakdown what happened to you really helps you understand that you should be asking instead of why are you that way or what's wrong with you to what happened to you why are mm-hmm. why are you like this you know
0: yeah i can see i mean so many times when you're working with families where they come in defensive and then they get labeled as one of those parents yep. or Or they don't care about their kids. Oh, Uh, that's a big one. um, So my sister is a a school counselor in California. And there's, you know, a lot of people don't speak English. And in one of her first positions, she got hired because she can speak Spanish. And a lot of the staff did not speak Spanish. And so a lot of them would say things like, well, that parent never comes to anything. They obviously aren't invested. And she's like, I just talked to them last week. And they're like, I'm so glad that I have somebody I can talk to that speaks the same language as me. And they probably had some really negative experiences with just somebody who didn't understand their culture. And, And that falls into
1: one of the pillars, right, of cultural, historical and gender issues. I have schools that I support. I went to one a few days ago that is like, I'm the only white person walking around and I need to be respectful of how they discipline, you know, how they work within their community that I... If I, I am the outsider, I need to respect that. I need to, you know, be supportive to them in the ways that they need it. Um, I was going to say something else about all of that. And it totally just went out of my mind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So one thing I wanted to make sure we touched on before we wrapped up, um, you posted something the other day about the, it's kind of the quadrants of parenting. Yes. Can you, and you, you compared it to being, um, a parent, how you approach your, your, your clinical practice. Yes. So can you explain how that applies to the concept of helping students feel safe and just how we can approach that, that concept when we're working with kids?
1: Perfect. So This is one that I've been mulling over for a long time because I'm not a parent. So I haven't, you know, delved into those books of parenting styles before, but, you know, they come up on my Instagram now and TikTok. So I've been thinking it over that these parenting styles are so applicable to what we do as service providers, Mm -hmm. anyone on our team. So some of those parenting styles would be authoritarian, authoritative, permissive, and Mm -hmm. non-involved. So all of those, I changed to how it would look as an SLP. I know we get put into these boxes of like, oh, you're a type A or type B SLP, which just is like organizational style of like, yeah. and I do not fall into the type A. I'm, you know, not, not a planner. Uh, it's all this stuff. So my quadrant theory is that we have authoritarian SLPs, authoritative SLPs, permissive SLPs, and somewhat like non-involved. Um, and the permissive is ones that don't have typically great classroom management, mm-hmm. that they're always buddy-buddy. There is no discipline. Um, and discipline is different from consequence or um, um, discipline consequent. there's another word i'm thinking of
0: more like scaffolding and structure
1: yes yeah so i don't know if you've ever heard the term gentle parent yes. uh gentle parenting so mm-hmm. that is a misnomer for the authoritative group of parenting styles that uh, like a lot of times gentle parents when out in like the pop culture they put on permissive people, that there are no boundaries, there's no consequences for anything. Um, Gentle parents really are the authoritative group. So that would have boundaries. um, But it's not a power struggle, which is the authoritarian Mm -hmm. part of that. So the authoritarian people are those strict SLPs that you think of that, you know, it's, you're doing something because I say so. So before, when we talked about tra- trust and transparency, an authoritative SLP would be able to say, we are doing this because, not because I say so. So it- it's been an interesting concept that I've been Thinking about that, I think the goal is to be as authoritative as possible, not authoritarian. I know they're like very similar.
0: I know. Um, it's hard to say it one to the other on accident.
1: Right. I know. So, e- you can be strict as an authoritative SLP you can be like friendly as an authoritative SLP I think the goal is there and sometimes when we are dysregulated we fall into the authoritarian category or the permissive category I don't think there's many of us that are non-involved right. and along what you were saying about like the non-involved people or parents um, I think of all the time because I used to get that People used to say that all the time, and I would ask them, like, are these parents working, like, five jobs? Are they working from, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning to 2 o'clock in the morning? You know, that's not not involved. They are – getting paid, you know? So that is a big difference. Yeah. If you, if they're making, if they're depending on minimum wage and you make a three hour IEP meeting in the middle of the day, that affects their funds. So it's not that they're uninvolved. It is that they need to make money. So it's just this parenting stuff. I think it can apply to speech in how we, how we interact. Um, because the authoritative group, that gentle SLP, is using the pillars of trauma-informed care, safety, choice, collaboration, mutuality, trust and transparency, empowerment, cultural, historical, and gender issues in that mindset. it's it, They're all different mindsets, um, and you can, at one time, be, when you're dysregulated, end up authoritarian or permissive. But again, the goal is to be authoritative.
0: Yeah. I mean that to me, that's a very balanced approach. And I can think of ways when I was the on the patient end when I felt like the authoritative was was what the person was doing. And that's usually ideal. So like I just had foot surgery. When I went in to go talk to the surgeon, he's explaining all of these things, telling me all of these choices, but still it's you know it's choices. He's talking yes. about options. But then when I go in there and I'm all, you know, on the table, strapped down, it's, this is what's going to happen. And the feeling that he gives to me is I've got you. Like, so it's not a free for all where there's no structure. It's very structured. They had their act together. I felt like they were taking care of me, but I still felt like he was giving me the information that I needed to make a choice.
1: That's incredibly important. And I also want you to think about in a children's hospital. There is actually yeah. a profession that interests me so much. I think if I were to switch to something now, it would be called a child life specialist. And if you're not familiar with this, this profession, it's basically to make sure that a child's experience in a hospital is trauma informed to reduce the harm that's caused there. So if you think of a child that's constantly going for treatment of cancer or something, um, I don't know if you've seen the little like cars that you can drive, They drive themselves into the operating room that that makes it feel they're it's their choice. It's not dragging them kicking and screaming. It makes it this, you know, you have a choice, you you feel safe, it's providing those aspects. So Um, I think that's incredible. And also, why isn't that at the adult level? Like, We need a trauma-informed specialist at the adult (laughs) level to make sure that we're not causing harm to them as well. Um, But I think that's a great addition to a hospital system for children is a child life specialist is to make sure that you reduce the risk of trauma because there's so much possible medical trauma.
0: I can't imagine how many people are traumatized by medical settings. Just the the smells and the sounds and just the whole feel of it. Just Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah.
1: And it's been because of many of their experiences that they cannot, you know, they won't, they don't go to the hospital. They don't go and see doctors because of previous experiences. So it's, it's so important to be trauma informed as possible.
0: Yeah. I remember one time I had the strep test when I was little. I don't remember what happened, but I remember that I was gagging and I was freaking out I still, when I go in there, I have to like sit on my hands. Yeah. And I'm like, I have to prep the person and say, I know, I understand what you need to do, but please be patient with me because I don't like people sticking things in my mouth when I don't yeah. feel like I'm in control. That's the I, thing, it's the control thing.
1: I had a very similar experience to you um when I was a child and I remember it that I, you know, he was in there for a long time and it hurt. It hurt. Um, and I grabbed his hand and I pulled it out. And his response to me was, you shouldn't have done that. Or like, you're going to regret that. So, mm. yeah. So, and then you have experiences later on that someone does it so gently that you're like, this is, this is able to be done. I thought it was attacking you, you know? Yeah. So yeah. like, that's that trauma-informed aspect as providers, they might be, you know, having 90% productivity. They need to get through the case And they're just like, yeah. ha, 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 ha. Yeah. So again, that's when you have those system in, systems in place, especially as an SLP or OT or PT. When we're putting ourselves at ninety percent productivity, we are reducing the chance that we can provide trauma informed care because we're not worried about our our conversation SL or our clients. It's about I need to get this done to meet these standards, and that's not trauma informed because you're, you're not taking into taking into account the individual at all.
0: Yeah. That's I, the productivity that that's like a whole, you could get into a whole episode on that.
1: (laughs) It is. And that's why, I mean, there's many facilities that will put like a 67% or a 70% and that's
0: more reasonable. uh,
1: That's so reasonable. And it's trauma informed when you're, when you're putting people at 90%, that's, it's about money. It's about, you know, you have billable to get hours. through the, yes, billable hours. And you're not considering the needs of your clients, your patients. So the places that are putting lower productivity standards, I, I think are trauma informed or doing it for a trauma informed way. That's like, how do I best treat the people that are in front of me?
0: Yeah. I remember I could, I, it was so hard to get above 60 to 70% when I was in a medical setting. Yeah. I was like, how, how are you doing it? How are these people at 90%? I mean, like, what if you see a person in the hall who needs directions? Do yep. you not help that person because you have to go and get to your next session? that right. You're billable.
1: Well, then also I've talked to many SLPs or other service providers that say they don't get a bathroom break or they don't get a lunch break or anything like that. And that's when that system is not supporting the individual because we have our trauma from our workplace. So the the people above us need to be trauma informed to their providers to make sure that we are not traumatized <laughs>
0: by yeah. work. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> the, the whole bathroom thing that is just It's like a common, almost a joke, but that's not really funny. Right. And it's not. We should not be, you know,
1: penalizing people for using the bathroom. That's uh, out of control. So I I tell SLPs now, a lot of grad students ask me to come. I'm like, you take your bathroom break. You go. (laughs) Like, (laughs) your (laughs) client can wait. Like, it's very silly. but
0: Oh, so many different, so many different ways and examples of that. So So what are you, what are you working on this next year and where can people find you if they want to connect with you? I am so excited about this next year. I
1: actually have someone that booked me a year from now. So I'm like, I'm booked out for the next year, guys. No, but um, (laughs) I am continuing to post PTSD SLP, the Instagram page. I just connected my Instagram to a Facebook page. So now people who don't have Instagram can see my posts on Facebook I'm building a website right now, which will be of the same name, uh, ptsdslp.com. I opened an LLC, um, (laughs) to manage all of the speaking requests that I'm getting between being on podcasts. Um, a lot of grad students have me coming to their, um, clubs, the associations, the student associations, uh, professors are having me in their, uh, Classrooms, virtually or in person. I am speaking at Asha Connect, which is a school based conference mm-hmm. in July. Uh, and I am an invited speaker at Asha in November. Wow, uh, that's a big so deal. I know. And Congratulations. thank you. That, that's been my big goal. Um, and then I'm developing a six hour workshop uh, for people to have me come out and work with any service provider or educators, whoever it might, might be. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be consulting services. Uh, There's a lot of changes. It's a really big year, so I'm really excited.
0: Well, I wish that I would have been able to take one of those workshops before that first evaluation that I totally fumbled. But that's why the grad students need to,
1: you know, there needs to be trauma informed education available to them so I'm happy when I hear from uh, professors that are asking me to speak to their class I would love a class of it I, I want yeah. every single day them them learning about it because you're you're not the only person who's felt unprepared in those situations that you're able to rattle off data and that's it like mm-hmm. we need to be able to use therapy skills um, more of being a therapist in how we talk to people and that needs to be a mandatory class. I'm, I'm trying to make that happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and it applies to everything. I mean, yep. how many times are you going to have to have that conversation with the parent? Probably a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You should get on LinkedIn too, for sure.
1: Oh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on yeah. LinkedIn. I'm there.
0: Okay. Well, we will link to all of your places in the show notes. Yay. And yeah, I'm excited to see what you do this next year and oh. beyond. Thank you. I'm always
1: open to presenting for whoever. It might be doctors, um, you know, a, a graduate level department, undergrads, like whoever wants me to speak about trauma-informed care, I can cater it to them. So I'm always willing to hear from people.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on. And Thanks I'm for glad, having like me. Like I said, I'm glad that I I had to invite you on before you got all booked up and <laughs> No,
1: I, I'm so glad I can always make time for, for you, for, for a podcast. I, I love being on podcasts and just being able to the idea out to more people. It's it's I'm a big podcast listener, uh, yeah. cause I've got quite the commute. So it's, it's
0: all good. All right. Well, thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you to check the show notes for all the places you can connect with Rachel, including her Instagram account at ptsdslp. And if you found this episode useful, then definitely share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. Finally, don't forget to check out the free online training for K-12 therapists who want to offer social and academic support that's evidence-based and neurodiversity-affirming. Again, you can sign up for that free training at drkarendudekbrannon.com/efleadership. And then finally, if you have a suggestion for a guest or if you would like to be a guest on the show, if you have a topic that you'd like to discuss that's relevant to people who are supporting students in K-12 education, whether it be the clinicians or the leadership, then definitely email me at talktomeatdrkarenspeech.com. As always, thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.